Will you remain standing and pray with me? Father, would you allow us this morning to press our claim for your grace and mercy in our lives? Pour out your spirit upon us in this time of the word. Make our hearts open receptacles for the words that your spirit would have for us this morning. And I pray that you would allow them to take root in our hearts and to bring forth a bountiful harvest for the good of your kingdom and for your glory in our lives and the lives of those around us. And so we commend ourselves during this time of the preaching to you. In the name of Jesus Christ, amen. You may be seated. Bear with me, I feel like my throat is getting a little scratchy. I feel like I'm finally singing with the mask off. Um, So today we begin our series in the book of Acts. Um, And if if this is something that you would be wondering about, we have permission from the bishop to do this, departing from the lectionary. Uh, so if you were, uh, if you'd looked at the lectionary this morning to see what passages were going to be read, you might have been somewhat disappointed. But we have permission from the bishop uh, to enter into this season through the book of Acts during the summer while Ben's away. And I, I kind of like to think that while the cat's away, the mice will play. So that's not how I'm going to view. So I'm going to view this. No, I'm playing. That's not how we're going to view the summer. Uh, but at the beginning of any kind of project, whether it's a preaching series or whether it's uh, building a backyard deck, you have to do some initial, uh, some initial work, some laying a foundation, whatever it might be, the, the necessary preparations. Uh, and that's exactly what this sermon will be uh, for this series. So it's going to be a bit on the teachy side. So do forgive me in advance for that. Uh, but that's simply what we have to do. We need to lay down a bit of a foundation uh, for the series ahead of us. But this is exactly what Luke is doing in Acts 1. He is laying down his own sort of foundation. He's building the groundwork for this narrative where he will recount the spread of God's kingdom through the spirit-empowered church from Jerusalem to the ends of the earth. This is what Luke is about. But before we can take a look at that particular foundation, it would be helpful if we have an idea about what in the world he is doing overall. Sometimes it's helpful to see the big picture, to know what he's intending to do. Why is he writing this book to the church? Why is he writing this book to O Theophilus, right? Luke writes Acts to form, this is his purpose, to form communities that bear witness to the triune God revealed in Jesus. Luke writes the book to form, to shape, to mold communities that bear witness to the triune God revealed in Jesus. In short, he writes a culture-forming narrative. Acts is intended to form a particular culture within communities of people who embrace the gospel. That is what we see throughout the book. We see people embracing the gospel, and when they do that, they embrace a completely other life, a new way of living, new patterns of living and being in this world. In Acts, Luke aims at nothing less than the reception of an alternative, total way of life a comprehensive pattern of being and living in God's good creation. And this this way of living is one that runs counter to the patterns of life in the Greco-Roman world. We see tensions arise all throughout Acts when the church is out in the Greco-Roman world responding to the grace that's been given to them in Jesus. There's tensions that arise. We see it in Philippi. We see it in Thessalonica. We see it all over the place. These tensions arise because when one embraces the gospel of God's kingdom, 
A new way of life is created in that person. A new patterns of living. Not the old patterns of life, but new patterns of living. And the same, the same is true for us. When we embrace the gospel today in the 21st century, we receive a complete new way of life that run contrary to the, to the patterns of life in our world and in the cultures within it that have profoundly shaped each of us. In Acts, Luke write, writes a narrative that presents pictures and portraits of the lives of regular people. You'll, you'll hear me say that a lot. These were just normal, regular, first century people that the gospel is encountering and transforming to become saints and martyrs. There's nothing particularly special about anyone. We might always emphasize Paul, but there are many other people in Acts whom God is using, transforming by the power of his spirit to proclaim the good news of his kingdom through a total transformation of their lives. This is what Acts is, this is, what Acts is all about. Embracing the gospel of Jesus, creating a community that embodies this new culture. And this new culture is the culture of God's kingdom coming on earth as it is in heaven. And you might be asking, as I was asking myself when I was getting into this, well, what exactly do we mean by culture? That word happens a lot. We use it, agriculture, culture, horticulture. What do we mean by culture in this particular case? This is what we mean. A culture is a community whose total way of living, its practices, and behaviors, its beliefs about what is really important, about the stuff that's really significant, it's shaped by a shared story, a controlling story. In order to make sense of our lives as humans, we depend on some story or stories that provide the broader framework of meaning for every part of our lives. Uh, I've mentioned this early in the first service. Uh, Alex loves a philosopher named Alistair McIntyre, and Alistair McIntyre has this to say, he says, I can only answer the question, what am I to do? What am I to do if I can answer the prior question of what story or stories do I find myself a part? Now, just we'll break that down just a bit. This, this is what we do every time we meet someone for the first time. What do we say to them or what do they request of us? Tell me about yourself. It's good to meet you, John. Tell me about yourself. It's good to meet you. Tell me about yourself. And what do we do? We begin to tell them Little snippets, little stories, little vignettes about significant places and people that have shaped who we are. That These stories are the stories that we find significance in our lives. They are even stories that give us purpose at times and direction in our lives. If you've ever been around Father Ben long enough, you're going to hear him talk about it, whether you like it or not, about Scottish heritage in North Carolina. And, I, you know, he'll talk about that. That's been formative for him in his, in his conception of who he is. It's been significant for him. You'll hear him talk about his father in ways that are that is significant. If you're around me for long enough, you're going to hear me talk about a hog farm in Florida because that, the stories around that farm were significant in shaping who I am. That's how I get parts of meaning in my life because of these stories that have happened to me, places where I've been. And all of us do this. Every culture does this. We tell stories to make sense. Not, not fictitious stories, per se, but we tell stories to make sense of things and to give us purpose, to direct our actions, to direct our beliefs. Yet, I think we have to ask at this point, is there something more than just personal stories? Is there something more than just stories about my nation or stories about my state? You know, oftentimes we're very proud about our states. We might be very proud about our cities. Is there something more than our personal stories? 
Is there something more than just stories of even our civilizations? And Luke's answer to that question is yes. In Acts 1, his answer is yes. There is such a thing. There is such a larger story that encompasses all these other stories, whether it's the story of the Western civilization, whether it's the story of North Carolina, whether it's the story of Scots in North Carolina, whether it's the story of some weird boy on a farm in Florida. All of them get drawn up into this larger true story of the whole world that Luke situates the book of Acts within. That's what he's doing in, these, in this first chapter here in Acts. And for Luke, this bigger story forms the foundation or the broader framework that makes sense of all the smaller stories we will encounter in the book. Stories of ordinary folks in the church transformed by the grace of God doing ordinary and at times extraordinary things for the furthering of God's kingdom on earth. All those actions only make sense if we can situate them within this larger story. So this bigger story functions as the controlling story for this new culture of God's kingdom that the church embodies throughout Acts. The bigger story is the only thing that makes sense of the sermons that we hear from Peter and Stephen and Paul and Philip throughout, throughout the book. It's the only thing that makes sense that gives them meaning. It's the only thing that makes sense to folks selling second homes and maybe their only home and extra properties and giving everything over to have it in common with their brothers, to provide for the needs of their brothers and sisters. Who would do that? What makes, what makes that make sense? It's this initial story that Luke tells. It's this broader story. And this is the only thing that makes sense of Jews and Samaritans and Gentiles uniting together people who previously hated each other, people who previously killed each other, coming together in the church, united before the throne of God as equals, able to call one another family, brothers and sisters. I mean, the only thing that makes that make sense is this story that Luke begins to tell in Acts 1 as the foundation for his whole narrative. Okay, so what's this foundational story we've been building up to? Well, before we get to that, one more thing. Luke tells this story in a condensed way. We're familiar with condensed stories. We recite one every week in the Nicene Creed. We recite one when we say the Apostles' Creed, right? It's a condensed story. Little things that, that have a larger background, a larger story. They're almost hooks, in essence, to this broader story. I believe in God, the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. There's creation, this huge beginning part of the story. I believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord. He was... Uh, ooh, he was... Uh, Help me out here, folks. He was uh, uh, under Pontius Pilate, crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead, and on the third day, he rose again. All those parts of that are reflective and draw into this much larger story that all of Scripture is telling. It's a condensed story. This is exactly what Luke is doing here in Acts chapter 1. The whole world, this is Luke's story, the whole world in general and Israel in particular, have been suffering under the weight of sin and death since the rebellion of Adam and Eve. God has sent his only son, Jesus, to take on human flesh to come as Israel's long-awaited king and as savior of the world. And Jesus came proclaiming the good news about the kingdom of God, that God is willing to forgive sinful rebels who return to him in repentance. And this is exactly what Jesus proclaims in the Gospels. 
In Mark chapter 1, verse 15, Jesus says, The time is fulfilled, and the kingdom of God is at hand. Repent and believe the good news. Believe the gospel. However, in the story, the Jewish leaders who represent Israel and the Roman authorities who represent the Gentiles reject Jesus. This is what the cross is. The cross is their definitive rejection of Jesus. The world, Israel, the Romans, the Jews, the Gentiles gave everything they had. They threw everything they had at Jesus and they killed him on a tree. But God, but God responds with a trump card. Resurrection. And this is the central part of this true story of the whole world. At the center of the story of our universe stands Jesus risen from the dead. That is the central part of Luke's story. Why is this the central part? Well, one, the resurrection is God's rejection of the world's rejection of Jesus. The resurrection is God's rejection of the world's rejection of Jesus. They thought they had won. You can imagine hell rejoicing, Satan doing a jig. The Jews are finally like, this guy is finally out of our hair. But then what happens three days later? Reports of resurrection, God laughing in heaven, at least in my mind. It seemed somewhat joyous. You think you're going to win, but no, you're not. Resurrection, new life, the power of God to create and redeem and restore at work in the body, the literal body of Jesus. Bringing it back to new life and even to something much better than the body he had previously. A body that can inhabit both dimensions of reality. The earthly dimension and the heavenly dimension. It is at home in both. And it is the down payment and the hope with which we have for we can, we can inhabit the world to come. Which is a world where heaven and earth are merged together as one. We've sung about it or we will sing about it in this service this is our hope. This is what we work for. This is the end of the story that Luke tells us in Acts. This is what the church is on mission to do, to bring heaven on earth through the power of the Spirit of God. Yet at this point, all, all of this brings the disciples to a question in verse 6. You might see it if you have the text in front of you. They say, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? And if you can just put yourself in their shoes for a, for a moment, for three and a half years they've been hearing Jesus following this kind of itinerant rabbi around the, the land of Palestine and he's been proclaiming the kingdom of God. Repent and believe in the gospel. Over and over again, Jesus is proclaiming the kingdom of God. It's at hand, it's coming. And they're thinking all the while, yes, this is what we have longed for as a people. We long for Jesus to bring in his kingdom. We're with Jesus we're going to have some significant roles to play. We're going to have some power to wield in this new kingdom. They're like, okay, you're risen from the dead. The crucifixion thing was a bit of a road bump for us. We were a little depressed, but now that you're alive, now we finally, after 40 days, are convinced, right? Because it wasn't an easy thing for them to believe in the resurrection. Don't think ancient people had an easier time to believe that someone rose from the dead. They were far more familiar with death than you are. They were around it all the time. They kept the bodies in their homes. They cared for their dead before either they buried or burned them. 
They were familiar with death. They were quite well aware of the finality of death. So it's no small thing for them to believe in the resurrection. This is why Luke says Jesus, for 40 days, is showing them proofs that his body is indeed a resurrection body, that he's not a ghost. It would be unsettling. And so the disciples, once the resurrection starts to sink in, they're like, oh, is the kingdom back on? Are you going to restore the kingdom now to Israel? Is that what's going to happen? Because we're, we're ready, <laughs> we're willing, and we want to take charge. We want Israel to dominate the nations. This is what Israel's hope was. And what's Jesus' answer? It's not exactly what we might think. It's actually neither yes nor no. It's a little bit of both. Jesus says, no, you will not receive a calendar of God's unfolding purposes in this world. And no, the kingdom will not be restored to Israel as you have dreamed. It will not be a geopolitical entity with a standing army and institutional power. It will not be that. But yes, the kingdom is being restored right now. It's being restored at this time in the most unexpected of ways. And how is that kingdom being restored, we might ask? Jesus tells us, he tells the disciples in verse 8, but you, Christ church, disciples, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and to Judea and to Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Yes, the kingdom is breaking into this world right now. I'm going away, I'm ascending to the Father, but I'm sending you out to bear witness of the king who has won. In the ancient world, what happened when a king won a victory? They would send emissaries out to proclaim that victory. What would happen when a new king was enthroned? They would send people to the furthest stretches of their dominion to say, hey, a new king's here. He's enthroned. He deserves your allegiance. And this is exactly what Jesus gives the church. This is the task he gives the church, to go out in this world, to live lives of loyalty to King Jesus, submitted to King Jesus, and bearing witness that he is enthroned. He won. You know how he won? God raised him from the dead. And that sounds like an odd message, but that's the message that we hear throughout Acts, whether spoken to Jews or to Gentiles, whether to Greeks or to Macedonians, whether to Romans. The same message that Jesus has been raised by God back to new life and that he now sits at his right hand to rule and reign. We know this is a message because in Thessalonica, the accusation that was brought against them was, these folks proclaim a different king who's not Caesar, but Jesus. That can't be. That's what Jesus calls us to. He does say the kingdom is here. In essence, Jesus is saying to the disciples, you're asking about the kingdom. You're asking about when it will come about, when Israel will be exalted as the top nation, when all the nations of the world will be subject to God through Israel. Well, in one sense, Jesus is saying to them, that's already happened. Because in me, as the chief representative of Israel, I have won. All nations are subjected to me. He sits enthroned in heaven over all the earth. But in another sense, it's not happened yet. Not fully, at least. Because we still await the time when the whole world, every culture, every nation will be submitted visibly and clearly under the just and healing rule of God in Jesus. This is what we long for. And this is why Jesus says, but now 
in that in-between time, you must be my witnesses. Taking the good news about me, risen from the dead and ascended to rule to the nations, to everyone. This message is for everyone. That's what that tells us. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaritans, and to the ends of the earth. Jews, Samaritans, and Gentiles. In the Jewish world, the only three types of people there are. Every single person, all of humanity, deserves to hear this message that Jesus is the king. So you see at this point, Jesus invites the disciples now to participate in his mission. And Luke, by recording this for us, invites each one of his readers, each one of you who heard that passage read this morning, to participate with Jesus in this kingdom mission in the world right here in Winston-Salem. Jesus is calling each one of us, he's drawing each one of us up into this controlling story of God's redeeming love in Jesus to free the world from death and decay and sin. And he invites the disciples and he invites us to see our lives as part of this bigger unfolding story, to find true meaning and significance and purpose for our lives set within this larger story of God at work in Jesus and in the church through the power of the Spirit. That's a huge task that he's called us to. But yet it just requires us to submit ourselves in little things. One little thing at a time. One little act of forgiveness breaks the kingdom in further. One little act of radical generosity, the kingdom breaks in a little further. Telling a neighbor about Jesus, the kingdom breaks in just a little bit more. So it's a vast Vast task that's before us. But Jesus says you're to do this, you're to bear witness with your life. Every little bit. Submitted relationships, submitted vocations to Jesus. It is this bigger story that shapes the new culture of God's kingdom that the church embodies across the pages of Acts by means of bearing witness to Jesus. The book of Acts invites us as those who have embodied the, who have embraced the good news of Jesus to play our own part, to play our own role in this unfolding drama of God's kingdom, which is restoring earth to what God has always desired for it to be from the moment of creation. So what does it look like for the kingdom of God to be restored here? And what's this? I think sometimes we read Acts, we read the scriptures, we think, that's really nice. That sounds like a different world. What is that? What does that even mean? Thousands of people coming in one day, tongues of fire resting on heads. How, I don't know, where would I go and sit, stand up before, like, at, you know, go to Wake Forest University like Paul does in Acts 17 before the Areopagos and, and declares that Jesus is alive from the dead, that you've all been worshiping gods that are not gods? Here's the one who deserve your, deserves your allegiance. And what does that look like for us to, to spread the kingdom of God right here in Winston-Salem? Because this is what God has called us to do. And this is what it looks like. It looks like you being witnesses. The kingdom of God looks like you receiving power by a gift of the Holy Spirit, which we remember next week at Pentecost. It looks like you receiving a power, power by the gift of the Holy Spirit and being authorized with that power to go as witnesses that Jesus is king. To bear witness means that your life looks like Jesus' life. That's what it means to bear witness. I think some of us, if you haven't been getting it yet, I've been talking about evangelism. 
and for most of us, I mean, if you're like me, the word evangelism has caused hives in the past. Uh, we might have somewhat of an allergic reaction to it. And it's like, mm, Romans Road, you know, things like that. And we, we're like, I don't feel comfortable doing that. I don't know how to do that. How do we bear witness? Throughout, throughout Acts, one of the chief ways that we see the church bearing witness is living a new way of life that runs counter to the patterns of life on offer in our world. And at times, yes, they do preach the good news of Jesus. When people are like, what in the world? Like next week, are these people drunk? What's happened? What is this new thing that's happening here? That's when Peter gets up and proclaims the gospel. When you're living lives that are completely transformed by the grace of God because you've embraced the gospel of Jesus, you're going to be different when you submit yourself to the king. When you forgive people that most people would not forgive, people are going to ask you, what in the world are you doing? And then you have an opportunity. I do this because Jesus... Jesus has transformed my life. I've encountered him. He's alive from the dead. He's king. He, he deserves my loyalty, my allegiance, my life, everything. You know, there's nothing the church withholds from Jesus in Acts. And when they do, they're judged for it. Ananias and Sapphira, Acts 5. He demands it all. And this is how we witness to the good news of Jesus, by lives totally transformed. And we do bear witness in word to the risen Lord. And you will have plenty of opportunities to do that if you live out the new life of God's kingdom. So what's God's kingdom? It is the sovereign, saving, healing, forgiving justice-bringing, hope-fulfilling reign of God in heaven over earth through Jesus. That's the kingdom of God. It is the sovereign, saving, healing, forgiving, justice-bringing, hope-fulfilling reign of God in and through Jesus on earth as it is in heaven. And I think we all want that. How has our governments worked out? How has man's ways worked out? Where is our world any more just? Where is it hope fulfilling? It's nowhere. And where there are vestiges of it, it's because the church has been there. And where it's losing that, it's because the church has receded. God's kingdom is his rule over all the earth, and it's a rule we all want and we all desire and we all long for. This is what we pray every day and every Sunday. We say, God, bring your kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And we're asking God in this prayer to bring your justice, bring your healing, your compassion, your kindness, your forgiveness. Bring life on earth to look like life looks like with you in heaven. We've had people pass away this year. (laughs) 
we pray the Lord's Prayer in light of that because we want to experience now. We want to experience now what they are experiencing in full. And you know what? We can have it. God gives it to us through his spirit. You can have it. Why don't you want it? We can all have this life right now. We can live out the life of the kingdom We are advanced signs of the kingdom of God on earth. Our lives are to be testimonies of the grace of God that has been given to us, that's transformed our lives, and we are to be beacons witnessing to this new reality that God is doing on earth. What does it look like for the kingdom of God to move forward here in Winston-Salem? What does it look like for God to restore his kingdom right here, in your lives, in your homes, in your neighborhood, in your jobs, at your schools, wherever you find yourself, what does it look like for God to restore the kingdom of God at Publix or Lowe's or even Food Lion? (laughs) What does it look like for God to restore the kingdom right here? What does it look like in your job, in your struggles with cancer? What does it look like in your struggles with a broken family? What does it look like in your struggles with loss of loved ones? Jesus is God's only answer. Jesus is God's only answer. He is his only answer to this broken world. He is the only answer to injustice. He's the only answer to struggles. He's the only answer to sorrows. Christ Church, I invite us to take seriously this summer, and we should never not take it seriously, God's agenda in Winston-Salem. And that agenda is his kingdom breaking out in your life and in the lives of your neighbors. It's his kingdom. His kingdom is all about life on earth submitted to Jesus. And he wants you to figure out what the gospel is has to do with your job. I can't do that for you. I can sit here and I can preach the word and I can try to cast an imagination for God's kingdom right here in Winston-Salem that the scriptures give us, but you have to figure out what the gospel has to do with your work. You have to figure out what the gospel has to do with your neighbor and your home because I can tell you right now, God does not care if your home was an investment. He put you there for a reason. There are neighbors that live beside you and behind you in front of you that he has placed you there to bear witness to his reign. What does the gospel have to do with your family, with your marriage, with your friendships, with every part of your life, with your retirement, with your finances, with whatever it might be. This morning, God invites us. Really, he commands us. If we're honest with the text and even our liturgy, he commands us to go out into the world, to do the work he has given us to do, to love and serve him as faithful witnesses of Christ our Lord, Christ our King. We say that every week. We pray that every week. May that be our prayer. And as we close, 
this morning, we have to admit that that task of bearing witness to Jesus in every aspect of our lives is daunting. It, 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 it's, it's, all, it's mind-boggling. It's, it's vast. It might even scare us. We have to admit that, and I think that's fine to admit that because that's where we're all at. If we're being honest right now, I don't know how to do that. This is exactly where the disciples were at after the ascension. Jesus has just given them this mission to proclaim his kingship to the world, as if that's not a lot for 120 people in Palestine, kind of a backwater town in the Roman Empire. So it's instructive how they respond. And this is so brief. They respond with two things. They pray and they read. They pray and they read scripture. We heard it read. They came back to Jerusalem. They went to the upper room, all the disciples, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and others, and they devoted themselves to prayer. Why? Well, when the, when the king assumes his throne seat at the control center of all the world, and you've been given a massive task to do, what do you do? Help me. How do I do this? Give us power to do this. Give us boldness to do this. Give us courage to do this. And so Christ Church over this summer, and I pray it will never stop, I would, I would ask you to commit over the summer to pray. To pray for God to, to give you an imagination for what it would look like for the kingdom of God to break out in your life. In normal, everyday ways. Beginning with just small acts of forgiveness that have such large consequences in God's scheme of things. How is God calling you to bear witness to his kingdom right here in Winston-Salem, in your home and neighborhood and work and school? Please pray over this summer with us. And I would love to hear what the Lord is saying to you and speaking to you through his word and through prayer. I'm serious. Please tell me, email me, text me. Let's grab coffee and talk. I want to hear because I want to know how we can respond to the Spirit. And then second, read and reread Acts. We're going to be in this book all summer. I, I want you to be in the book. And this will fuel that imagination because we get to see in these pages normal folks that God is energized by his spirit to do remarkably ordinary and extraordinary things to the power of his spirit. To bear witness to the kingdom of God. There's no reason, no reason that God cannot still do that now. That's our prayer. Pray and read, please, over this summer. I invite you into that task along with me. And may God pour out his spirit upon us and this church and other churches in this city who confess Jesus as king. And may the kingdom of God go out. Christ went up, the spirit comes down, and the church goes out. That's Acts. That ought to be our lives. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.